Welcome to a very special edition of Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of, bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. Today's episode will be presented in three parts, and at the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the complete story of American crime boss and 16-year federal fugitive, James J. Whitey Bulger. Now let's get started with our story about Whitey Bulger. In the late afternoon of June 22, 2011, in Santa Monica, California, a property manager named Josh Bond was sitting in his office at the Embassy Hotel. Picking up the phone, Bond punched in the number of tenants from another property across the street, the Princess Eugenia Apartments at 1012 3rd Street only blocks from the Pacific Ocean. Bond, who also managed the Princess Eugenia, needed to reach Charles or Carol Gasco, the elderly, childless couple that occupied the northeast third-floor corner apartment, number 304. The property manager actually knew the Gascos quite well. His own apartment was next door to theirs, and he interacted with Charlie Gasco quite frequently. Bond heard the phone ringing in his earpiece, but there was no answer. He hung up, not sure what to do. The reason for his call was that the Gasco's storage unit at the rear of the building was broken into, and he needed to know how the couple wanted to handle the situation. Come down and meet him, Josh, in the back of the building, or just have Josh notify the police. Bond was mulling over what he should do next when the phone rang. It was Carol Gasco, who via caller ID knew that he had called. Bond explained the situation, and Carol talked it over with her husband. There was a pause, and then she got back on the phone, telling Josh that Charlie would meet him downstairs in five minutes. Josh Bond then walked outside of the hotel and noticed that across the street, Carol was standing on her third-floor balcony. She looked at Josh, looked down at the street, an apartment garage entrance, and then quickly returned inside, clearly agitated. Carol Gasco's concern was definitely warranted. When Charlie Gasco emerged from the elevator into the rear area of the apartment building, he would not be meeting up with Josh Bond. Instead, he would be confronted by a half dozen FBI agents and various other law enforcement officials, guns drawn. They ordered him to get on the ground, but despite his age and relative frailty, His response underlined that this was not your typical 81-year-old senior citizen. In fact, it was not Charlie Gasco at all. It was America's most wanted criminal, James J. Whitey Bulger. Dressed in light pants, he refused to kneel down on the filthy, oil-slick basement garage concrete floor. It was his final act of defiance during a 16-year flight from justice and a lifetime as one of the most powerful and dangerous criminals in U.S. history. Minutes later, he called his longtime companion, the alleged Carol Gasco, who was in fact Bolger's longtime girlfriend and fellow fugitive, Catherine Grieg, his accomplice during Whitey's 16-year odyssey. He told her that he had been arrested, that she should stay in the apartment, and minutes later, she was also brought down to the garage, both fugitives now in handcuffs. The news of Whitey Bulger's apprehension flashed across America and around the world, but it resonated the most in the city of Boston. As always, in the fugitive's hometown, there was immediate questions and skepticism about the arrest, the same questions that have dogged the FBI the U.S. Department of Justice, and the federal government for the duration of Bulger's 16-year flight. 
This distrust on the part of Whitey's victims, the public, and even members of local Boston and Massachusetts law enforcement was warranted by previous revelations that several FBI agents colluded with Whitey to enable extortion, robbery, and even murder. At the time of Bulger's capture, John Conley, a longtime Boston FBI agent, was already serving a lengthy prison sentence for, among other things, tipping off Bolger that he was about to be arrested, the first of several FBI interventions attempting to prevent Bolger's detention. As an agency, the FBI had much to fear should Whitey ever be brought to justice. He had threatened on many occasions to leak tape recordings of incriminating conversations with and damaging information about numerous FBI officials. Information that could only amplify what many already considered to be a disgraceful scandal. Now, after 16 years, it was hoped that the unanswered questions concerning the FBI's relationship with Bolger during his lengthy criminal dominance and their role in enabling his escape and subsequent mysterious disappearance might finally receive some answers. The man who spent decades as Boston's most feared underworld mobster and America's most wanted fugitive came from very humble beginnings. James J. Bolger Jr. was born on September 3, 1929, in Everett, Massachusetts, a blue-collar suburb just north of Boston, Mass. His father, also named James J. Bolger, the third generation of the Bolger family that emigrated originally from County Wexford, Ireland, was born in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada, in 1883. Whitey Bolger's grandfather, a fisherman, was already deceased at the time of Whitey's father's birth, the victim of a shipwreck while working off of the rugged Canadian Atlantic coast. Whitey's grandmother, Alice, like many Irish immigrants to northern Canada, eventually, in 1889, decided to head for Boston, initially by herself. Six years later, already remarried, she sent for her family. By then her son James was 12 years old, and subsequent events indicate that he did not adapt well to his new environment. At age 15, James, already a high school dropout, decided to run away from home with a buddy and headed to Rhode Island. Arrested as a vagrant in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and subsequently released, the teenager then apparently attempted to return home via a freight train. He fell from the moving train, his arm so severely damaged that a doctor amputated it. Life never really got much better for Whitey's father, personally. Fitted with a wooden prosthetic device for his mangled arm, he was forced to scrape up employment as a clerk or even a night watchman, today known as a security guard. Employment was irregular at best, and by 1918, James Bolger was living with his now widowed mother in Roxbury, in a building where she was officially listed as the janitor. He moved out in 1922. But what he actually did during this time period is unknown, with the exception of several arrests for public drunkenness and even assault. By the mid-1920s, he managed to find steady employment as a clerk with a sand and gravel company and began a relationship with Jane Jean McCarthy from Everett. This romance culminated in a marriage, the couple eloping to New York, their wedding day occurring on January 10, 1928. James Bolger was 45, his bride was 21. A simple mathematical computation might explain this hasty behavior. The couple's first child was born on May 15th, a little more than six months later, a girl. Whitey was the next child born in September of 1929. Three more children soon followed, the large family renting a succession of apartments throughout the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston. How this family, the father only very occasionally employed at the Charlestown Naval Yard, and the mother, also working sporadically at department stores, survived at the height of the Depression, can only be imagined. But while this time period brought great deprivation, it also brought the New Deal good fortune of one of the first federal housing projects built in the U.S., the Old Harbor Development in South Boston. 
Someone somewhere must have been looking out for the Bolger clan because they were granted living space in one of the 1,000 apartments in the project out of 10,000 applicants, an impossible outcome with some external clout. Rent when the Bolgers moved in in 1938 was less than 30 bucks a month, the average tenant family earning no more than $1,200 annually. And Old Harbor became an extremely close-knit, practically insular, mostly Irish Catholic community where life revolved around family, work, and the Catholic Church. For William Bolger, Whitey's brother, a young, relatively undeveloped child, this newfound environment of stability was a literal godsend. He became an altar boy at nearby St. Monica's Church, an excellent student who graduated from Boston College High School, a respected Jesuit institution in nearby Columbia Point, and eventually received a B.A. and J.D. from Boston College before embarking on a remarkable political career. This was in marked contrast to the behavior of his older brother, who seemed already set in his ways by the time the Bulgers settled at Old Harbor. Even before they made it to their new refuge, Whitey Bulger spent much of his time on the streets with an element known then as juvenile delinquents, looking for opportunities to steal anything of value. With the younger Bulger approaching his teenage years, his father was pushing a very tired 60, and Whitey seemed to be able to come and go as he pleased with little consequence. Within the family, he was known as Jim or Jimmy and he came to detest the nickname Whitey, which is how local police referred to him, as they became more aware of his antisocial proclivities. He was not officially sanctioned until age 13, when he was arrested in downtown Boston for larceny. The actual details of the crime lost to history, but not the strange pattern developed, even with this early brush with the law. Although he was sentenced to reform school, the judge suspended the sentence and did not even require Whitey's participation in a strict probation program. By year end, the transgression was legally expunged, relevant if he was arrested again. For Whitey, a foregone conclusion. Many teenagers, after only one arrest, wound up at institutions that involved violence and abuse from both staff and other inmates. But Whitey was lucky, caught a break not the last time the justice system treated him with deference. Between the ages of 13 and 18, Bolger was arrested 10 times for crimes ranging from larceny, drunk in public, and assault and battery. Only once were charges ever pursued to the point of a criminal conviction, and even then, Whitey was able to get the charge reduced on appeal. It is no wonder that he developed an arrogant disdain for the criminal justice system and a sense of invulnerability. Unfortunately, this mentality only increased the severity of his transgressions. In May of 1948, Bulger and two accomplices enticed a young female into Whitey's car and attempted to rape her at a beach in Dorchester. The girl fought back and was kicked to the curb, but not before getting the license plate. All three teens were quickly arrested. Again, Bolger pled guilty to a lesser assault charge, paid a fine, and avoided a serious prison term. Within two months, he was arrested again, this time for a drunken assault in a diner that turned into a brawl with the police who showed up to arrest him. Again, he pled guilty to the lesser charge of public drunkenness, paid a modest fine, and walked away. But this lifestyle probably began to wear thin even with Whitey who at least possessed a high degree of native intelligence, most likely looking for some way out of his fundamentally dull South Boston environment. He did what many restless and wayward teenagers of his generation would also do. He joined the military, in his case, enlisting in the Air Force. Questions on his application concerning his arrest record were falsified or minimized, and by January of 1949, James J. Bulger, Jr., found himself at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. He received training in aircraft mechanics for the B-29 Superfortress. And although his misstatements on his application eventually came to light, he was not disciplined, most likely because he initially kept his military nose clean, and at the height of the Cold War, his expertise was in great demand. 
Unfortunately, this initial progress did not result in the typical American fable of redemption, Whitey returning to South Boston as a mature adult bedecked with medals and newfound outlook and work ethic. Instead, he began to evidence an inability to conform to the rigid standards of the military, first with minor transgressions like going AWOL in between assignments, but then after a reassignment to Great Falls, Montana, more serious arrests for assault and even rape. Although he was able to plead down his first arrest, the judicial system in Montana was more formidable than what Whitey faced in Boston. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail, served less than that, paid a fine, and the military looked the other way. A second charge for rape, in which Whitey was found consorting with a 15-year-old, was dropped when the prosecutor accepted Bolger's explanation that the interaction was ongoing and consensual. Once again, he was released from lockup and returned to Great Falls Air Base, approaching the end of his military commitment, but definitely wanting out of Great Falls, Bolger wangled an assignment to a base in Bermuda, but even there he eventually went AWOL, behavior that got him stripped of a promotion. He just barely received an honorable discharge, returning to Boston, age 23, in September of 1952. Upon his return to his hometown, Whitey picked right up where he left off. In the subsequent three years, numerous arrests followed, mostly for thefts of merchandise stolen from the back of delivery trucks. But Bolger was nothing if not ambitious, understanding that hijacked cigarettes and beer were a penny-ante proposition. He resorted to a much more lucrative but serious felony, bank robbery. With three accomplices in broad daylight, he successfully pulled off the first bank holdup in the city of Pawtucket, Rhode Island, the robbers netting over $42,000. He then went on a Midwestern and Southeastern migration after robbing a bank in Melrose, Massachusetts. Another bank was successfully robbed in Hammond, Indiana. In November of 1955, Bolger was perfectly suited for his new occupation, witnesses struck by his cool demeanor and complete confidence. But, as is usually the case, Whitey was eventually done in when an accomplice, arrested for another holdup, cut a deal and gave up information about Bolger's involvement. A federal warrant was issued for his arrest. Whitey read about that development in the newspapers and hit the road with his girlfriend, heading as far west as California. Living off of his bank robbery proceeds was not going to get him very far, and Bolger made the decision to head back to Boston. In the midst of planning a robbery of the Harvard Trust Company in Porter Square, Cambridge, Whitey was ratted out by an FBI informant, and when he walked out of the Reef Club, a bar on the Revere, Massachusetts beachfront strip, he was quickly apprehended and handcuffed by a squad of 10 FBI agents. The following day, instead of robbing another bank, Whitey was arraigned in federal court. Whitey Bolger finally got the attention of law enforcement in a big way. His bail was set at $50,000, an impossible to raise sum, and even he knew that bank robbery was a beef he couldn't talk or finesse his way out of. So, what did he do to try and minimize what could be a very hefty sentence? He cut a deal and implicated every single one of his accomplices for every offense he could think of. Whitey also refused to sign anything preventing any kind of written record, and his cooperation was not public knowledge at the time. He was also able to get his girlfriend, Jackie McAuliffe, who technically aided and abetted a federal fugitive, off without any charges. His accomplices were sentenced to terms that ranged from 8 to 20 years. Initially indicted for three bank robberies, the judge in the case was looking to sentence Bolger to at least 25 years in prison. But after consideration of Whitey's complete cooperation, he was sentenced to 10 years for each heist, with at least one term running consecutively which meant a total of 20 years in jail. It was a severe sentence, but without Whitey's information that led directly to arrests of two of the other suspects, it would have been worse. And from his very first federal arrest, Whitey Bulger was, in essence, an FBI informer. In July of 1956, there was no cushy club fed where Whitey could serve out his time in relative penal comfort. Instead, he was sent to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, a huge forbidding edifice that had housed the likes of Al Capone, Mickey Cohen, and Vito Genovese. 
By comparison, Whitey Bulger was a two-bit bank robber, not exactly intimidating at five foot ten, one hundred and fifty pounds, and other than a few hoodlums back in Boston, not particularly well connected. After thirty days of quarantine that was mandatory for every new inmate, Bolger was assigned to one of the eight-man cells that comprised most of the tiers of the prison. Part of his transition included comprising a list of approved correspondence that included his mother, his brother Bill, his girlfriend Jackie, and of all people, the then priest and dean of Boston College Law School and future congressman Robert Drynan. Drynan was a mentor to Bill Bolger, about to enter law school, and he knew of Whitey's plight and agreed to help in any possible manner. One individual deliberately not included was Whitey's father, the relationship there seriously broken. Whitey Bulger did not handle his initial residence in his eight-man cell very well. In a matter of a few months, he requested reassignment to a different location and even went as far as checking himself into the prison psychiatric ward, claiming he couldn't take his official assignment. An individual who required utter control of his environment Bolger found his crowded, invasive prison cell problematic, and he did not get along well with his cellmates. When he left the psych ward, he was transferred to a different cell, and this reassignment and visits from his brothers and family friends seemed to settle him down. Another factor may have been a powerful connection exploited by the Bolger family. Congressman John McCormick was not only the eventual Democratic majority leader in the House of Representatives, he was an old-school retail politician and practically a South Boston neighbor of the Bulgers. He communicated with the warden at the Atlanta Penitentiary, ostensibly to inform him when a Bulger was requesting a visit at the prison, but also to let this prison official know that he, John McCormick, had a personal interest in this particular inmate. McCormick, who also eventually became the Speaker of the House of Representatives, would be an influential factor during Bulger's incarceration. Ultimately, Whitey began to adapt to his new environment, getting a physical therapy-related position in the prison hospital, actually earning a merit award for his comportment. It was also through this assignment that Bulger became aware of the experimental program administered by Emory University professor Dr. Carl Pfeiffer involving the drug LSD. This research involving prisoners was well known within the prison walls and was also discussed publicly in Atlanta's most prominent newspaper, the Journal-Constitution. Sensing that LSD might have great potential in both the treatment of schizophrenia and receiving enthusiastic government funding via the CIA, which was curious about potentially exploitable aspects of the drug, the academic community recklessly administered massive doses of this substance to various subjects without much reservation. In Whitey's case, he took such dosages of the hallucinogen without any immediate deleterious effects and was initially considered a good subject. Unfortunately, this was not a uniform response. At least two inmates became psychotic after exposure to LSD, eventually requiring transfer to the federal prison in Springfield, Missouri, Pfeiffer maintaining that he did not know whether they ever recovered from a catatonic state. Initially, Whitey Bolger, most likely because he was receiving benefits from the program, did not personally have any pronounced negative reaction, taking over 50 LSD trips over a 15-month period. But suddenly, in November of 1958, he was involuntarily dropped from the program, the sparse historical record indicating that this was the result of a sudden inability to behave within the program's guidelines. Whitey's ejection from the group LSD program appears to be an indication of a sudden relapse of an inability to tolerate prison life and the onset of new bad behavior. In early January of 1958, he was placed in the maximum security wing while an ongoing investigation determined what role he played in the attempted flight of three inmates who hacksawed their way out of the prison hospital unit during an unsuccessful escape. This inquiry determined that Whitey, although not a participant in the actual attempt, supplied the hacksaw used by his fellow inmates. A prison informant also supplied information that Bolger was involved in other future plans to escape, contrary to Whitey's previous two-year facade of the model prisoner. 
Informed by letter of his brother's predicament, Bill Bulger not only contacted the prison warden himself, but also involved a local Boston judge, as well as John McCormick, who demanded an immediate update from the federal director of prisons, James Bennett. This was enough to stop the momentum that, unbeknownst to Whitey and his advocates, was already beginning the process of transferring Bulger to an even more forbidding facility, Alcatraz. For the moment, the mere involvement of McCormick and the reluctance of the director to tangle with such a powerful entity got Whitey off the hook. This reprieve was short-lived. Instead of towing the line, Bulger continued to associate with some of the more disreputable elements within the prison. Disruptive individuals routinely associated with perpetual ongoing plots to escape. Worse, he was personally linked to a second potential escape and his association with another notorious individual, Frank Lee Morris, sealed his internal fate. Morris would be transferred to Alcatraz even before Whitey and eventually achieve spectacular notoriety when he and two other inmates pulled off the only unsolved and possibly successful escape in the history of the prison, his role immortalized by Clint Eastwood in the film Escape from Alcatraz. Coming on the heels of Atlanta's previous request to transfer Whitey, this time the director of prisons immediately gave his approval. There was no additional congressional intervention, and despite Bill Bulger's vehement and relentless involvement, including an 11th-hour visit to D.C. to the director's office for an unscheduled in-person request for a last-minute reprieve, on November 13, 1959, Whitey was flown commercial with federal marshals from Baltimore to San Francisco. From there, in leg irons, he was placed on the small ship that transported him to the center of San Francisco Bay and the Rock. This was an especially isolating development for Whitey, for in the late 50s, transcontinental flight was a luxury the Bulger family certainly could not afford. He would have to rely on letters only, the occasional visit from his brother or other family members, now an impossibility. Initially, Bulger seems to have actually been more comfortable at Alcatraz. Although the prison was extremely regimented and strict, each prisoner got their own cell, a benefit to a control freak like Whitey. For nine months, he avoided controversy and spent most of his free time with a few close associates, lifting weights in the prison yard, and bulking up to 175 pounds. His numerous and cheerful letters home indicated that the food was an upgrade from Atlanta, and he looked forward to mealtime. But eventually the strange duality that marked Bulger's entire life reasserted itself. The prisoner taking part in a prison-wide strike that entailed many inmates refusing to leave their cells while some prisoners were upset over ambiguous complaints concerning prison officials meddling negatively with inmates' appeals, Whitey was more concerned with some of his close associates being sent to solitary confinement. He remained among a tiny group of the original malefactors who held out the longest and who were eventually brought up on charges that were officially labeled refusal to work. This transgression was adjudicated in front of the Good Time Forfeiture Panel, a hard-nosed disciplinary group composed of various members of the prison administration, who, despite Whitey's contrite statements that he had been confused and made what he now understood to be a terrible mistake, administered a severe punishment. All of Whitey's 200 days of good time toward an early parole were forfeited, and he was removed from his job in the prison laundry. He was reassigned to the lowly task of sweeping the prison tiers, an assignment that did not even allow for the accrual of good time, in essence ensuring that Whitey serve out his full sentence. Once again, the defiant Bulger, who always seemed to relapse into pointlessly stubborn behavior that revealed his calculating personality and hostility to authority, was back at square one. His ten months of positive interaction erased, and his true nature exposed to the now skeptical prison staff. This time, Whitey seemed to realize that he needed to seriously reapply the veneer of the chastened convict who had seen the light and understood the era of his ways. The prospect of spending decades at Alcatraz would probably induce that transformation in any reasonably intelligent individual. Despite his severe reprimand, he adopted a positive 
and helpful attitude that quickly allowed him to reobtain his position in the laundry and accrual of good time. And he also started to devise a plan to get out of Alcatraz entirely, figuring that an outright parole was impossible, but understanding that a transfer to another facility closer to home was more realistic. He not only still had friends in high places, his brother Bill was now a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, and John McCormick was the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the third most powerful politician in America. Both men were routinely in touch with Director Bennett, again trying to wrest control of this process away from the local level. It took several months and at least two special reviews that were initiated from Washington, D.C., but Whitey got his transfer in July of 1962 to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. It was a compromise on the part of prison officials in that although Whitey's initial request was for Lewisburg Prison in Pennsylvania, he was only being sent halfway across the country, and this was only on a conditional basis. Any subsequent relapse meant reassignment to Alcatraz. But Bolger had gotten off of the rock in a remarkable 28 months. The average prison term for a convict in Alcatraz was eight years. No doubt, this was the result of strings pulled at the highest levels of the federal government. These same forces kept the ball rolling. A year later, Whitey got to Lewisburg, much closer to Boston. But this momentum came to an abrupt halt in March of 1964, when Whitey's application for parole was denied and his father died. The relationship between father and son reconstituted, but still chilly. Of his father, he eventually said to a significant other, he's dead, and that's a good thing. Boulder's parole rejection seems to have frustrated him into getting into a fight in a prison shower, an altercation that almost got him transferred to a newer maximum security prison at Marion, Illinois. But this was glossed over. By now, prison authorities probably understanding that externally powerful influences would be relentless, and this incident never became a hindrance to the inevitable parole that was issued effective March 1, 1965. A job was arranged at a printing company. The plan was for Whitey to live at home, and no parole advisor was required. Father Drynan, the individual previously designated for that role, disappearing forever from Whitey's official prison record. Of what was originally a 20-year sentence, Bolger was out after only nine, despite numerous infractions. Whether Whitey Bolger ever intended to go straight after emerging from federal prison is a little murky based on his initial behavior. He became involved with a waitress and secretary named Lindsay Sear when she served him breakfast before he started work at his nearby construction job. Initially wary, she relented and agreed to socialize when he invited her to a Sunday cookout at his brother Billy's house. Sear lived in Quincy, a suburb south of South Boston, which allowed Whitey the freedom to keep her at geographic and emotional arm's length. Even after she got pregnant and had their son Douglas in May of 1967, Whitey refused to be domesticated. On their first night out together after the birth of Douglas, he did take her to the Parker house for dinner. But afterwards, he insisted on heading to the Triple O's Bar, a South Boston dive haunted by all of the local wise guys. While Lindsay got stuck shooting the breeze with one of Whitey's neighborhood cronies, Whitey talked to any number of shady characters out of her earshot, most likely planning illicit misbehavior. At least when Lindsay reminded Whitey that they had to get home by midnight to relieve the babysitter, he complied. On the way to their parked car, someone started shooting at them. Whitey pushed her behind his car, shielded her, and shot back, sending his attackers fleeing into the night. Once inside the automobile, Whitey tried to diffuse Lindsay's borderline hysteria with his endearingly sarcastic and perpetually black sense of humor, quipping, Relax, I told you I'd get you home by midnight. By 1967, Whitey was no longer employed legitimately. His brother Bill arranged a no-show job as a supposed night janitor at the Suffolk County Courthouse. Whitey punched in, killed a few minutes, and then screwed devoting his real attention to criminal behavior, the job really only a necessity to placate his parole officer. And as much as he discussed the possibility of a traditional domestic future with Lindsay, 
became clear that any affection he had for Lindsay and his child was outweighed by his intent to succeed in the criminal underworld that swirled throughout South Boston. He continued to spend time with her, but throughout the late 60s and early 70s, his heart was with one of the neighborhood criminal factions known as the Colleen Gang, who routinely shot it out with their rivals, the Mullins. When the head of the Colleen's, Donald Colleen, was shot to death in May of 1972, Whitey realized that fighting it out with the Mullins was a zero-sum game and only a matter of time before he was dead as well. Bolger, who became the de facto leader of the Colleen's after Donald's death, reached out to his rivals and arranged a truce and sit-down mediated by Howie Winter, the head of the main Irish criminal gang in the city of Boston and its suburbs, Charlestown and Somerville. To stop the bloodshed in South Boston, the various rackets of gambling, loan sharking, hijacking, robbery, and extortion were split up between the two factions, with Winter serving as the overall authority over any disputes. The arrangement also received the blessing of an associate of Raymond Patriarcha, the longtime Providence, Rhode Island-based godfather of the New England chapter of the Mafia. Whitey's professional life was interrupted by the death from Ray's syndrome of his six-year-old son, Douglas, in October of 1973. Lindsay Sear described Bolger as devastated by his child's death, but their relationship completely changed after this incident. He refused to go back to the Marshfield cottage that Lindsay lived in, and she refused to move elsewhere. Although they continued to see each other for a few years, the relationship eventually petered out. Even before this breakup, Whitey was already involved with two other women, both from South Boston, Teresa Stanley and Catherine Grieg. Needless to say, Whitey had no intention of living up to the truce arranged by Howie Winter. He ingratiated himself with Winter, spending a lot of time at the mob boss's headquarters in Somerville, Marshall Motors, a garage that also served as a chop shop and insurance fraud front. He eventually got the official sanction to eliminate any of his competition and former Mullen gang members, typically utilizing the services of John Martirano, winner's top hitman, and an individual eventually credited with unofficially murdering over 20 individuals. One of these hits was on Indian Al Notar Angeli, a contract underwritten by Gennaro Jerry Angiulo, the head of the Boston Mafia. Angelo was upset by Notar Angeli's murder of a mafia-connected bookie, and Indian Al was also a rival of the Winter Hill Gang. Winter Hill considered the most rational of the frequently violent and erratic Irish criminal gangs. Bolger coordinated the hit and several others, raising a stature with Winter, who became more amenable to Whitey taking over South Boston. Whitey also made the most crucial connection of his criminal career when he began to interact with Stephen Fleming, a member of the Winter Hill Gang who had ambitions of bigger and better things. Nicknamed the Rifleman, based on two army tours of duty in Korea, in which he earned both a bronze and silver star, Fleming also had an ongoing relationship with longtime Boston FBI agent Paul Rico, who specialized in developing informants in the New England criminal underworld. Rico was a critical piece in the FBI J. Edgar Hoover framing of four Italian wise guys, Peter Lamone, Henry Tamalillo, Joe Salvati, and Louis Greco, for lengthy prison terms that were originally death sentences. And by the time Bolger showed up at Marshall Motors, Rico had looked the other way as long as Fleming provided him with valuable intel to arrest and prosecute other high-profile mafia gangsters. It was Rico who helped coordinate the testimony of Joe the Animal Barboza, who claimed under oath that he killed an Irish gangster under the orders of the four innocent men. With the conviction of these defendants, which Paul Rico and J. Edgar Hoover knew to be wrongful, Barboza was released and became the first individual placed in the witness protection program. It did him little good as he continued his criminal ways in California and was eventually located by an Angelo hitman who shot him to death on a San Francisco street three months after his release from Folsom Prison. Observing this FBI duplicity and corruption, Steve Fleming presumed he could get away with anything as long as he kept Rico happy. When Paul Rico retired to Florida, 
He was replaced by a young newcomer named John Conley. Conley knew Whitey Bulger, had worked on Bill Bulger's political campaigns, and got hired by the FBI through the intervention of politicians like Bulger and especially John McCormick. He then fibbed on a 1973 request for transfer to Boston based on his need to care for a terminally ill father. Conley got his transfer. His father lived for another 10 years. Ambitious. Conley was fully aware that for the FBI, the American Mafia, to the exclusion of all other organized crime entities, was the paramount target of federal law enforcement. Aware that Steve Flemmie already had provided information, Conley set his sights on forming the same relationship with Whitey Bulger. Thus far in his brief FBI career in New York, Conley received high praise during his ongoing evaluations with the stipulation that he had not developed any confidential informants. The agent, knowing Whitey from the old neighborhood and willing to cut ethical and professional corners, understood that developing Whitey as a top echelon informant could be, within the Bureau, a career maker. Through Fleming and another FBI agent who had worked with Paul Rico, Dennis Condon, a get-together was arranged. Conley's pitch was simple and different than previous entreaties centering on Bolger's possible need to insulate himself from rival South Boston threats that the Angelo Mafia crime family was a threat to Whitey and would inevitably take him out, and that they already had numerous informants within lesser law enforcement agencies in the Boston area. It couldn't hurt to have the FBI in Whitey's corner. In exchange, Whitey, along with Steve Flemmie, would help the FBI against this potential mutual enemy, the Angelo crime family. How to deal with the potential fallout from his Winter Hill associates if it became known that Bolger was even meeting with an FBI agent? Whitey adopted the brilliant strategy of being completely open about the interaction. He went to Howie Winter and John Martirano and asked them what they thought of such a sit-down, claiming that the entire process was instigated by his brother Billy Bolger, who described it as having the potential of an FBI agent literally looking out for all of them. Billy had helped Conley get into Boston College and Suffolk Law School, get hired by the FBI, and grew up in the projects with the entire Bolger family. If anything, Winter and Martirano were enthusiastic about the idea. Conley, it was explained, would be the gang's source because he owed Bill Bolger. What they did not know was that, in exchange, Bolger agreed to be a confidential informant for the FBI like refusing to sign anything when he ratted out his bank robbery accomplices to the FBI, Whitey also insisted that Conley could never officially refer to him as anything but a consultant, and certainly not as an informant. In the underworld, a serious breach tantamount to being a rat or snitch, usually punishable by death. By September of 1975, this arrangement was officially written up in FBI files. Unfortunately for Whitey, he was not welcome in the Angelo stronghold of the Italian North End and was distrusted as another Irish hothead from Southie. But the Italian Steve Flemmie was, and it was through his partner that Bulger was able to placate his FBI handler because Conley was also motivated to ingratiate himself with Billy Bulger and still maintained a certain awe of Whitey dating back to their childhood and the projects. He frequently wrote up falsified internal reports, crediting Whitey Bulger with intel which actually came from Flemmie. The degree of Conley's ambition and his willingness to ingratiate himself with his prize informant was underlined when in late 1976, the FBI agent got wind that another FBI informant, Richie Castucci, a shady club owner and bookie from Revere, had ratted out two wanted Winter Hill mobsters who were on the lam avoiding a murder indictment, Castucci literally providing the FBI with an apartment address in Manhattan. Conley relayed this info to Whitey, who got John Martirano involved. Castucci was lured to a Somerville apartment, ostensibly to split up collective gambling proceeds from some mutually owned accounts. He left a bullet in his head, administered by Martirano, Whitey then binding his hands and feet and placing his body in a sleeping bag. The cadaver was placed in the trunk of the victim's Cadillac, driven to Revere and abandoned, where it was discovered. Fleming and Bolger then went to the majority owner of the Squire Lounge, a bar in which Castucci owned 42%, and explained that they were now his new partners.
although it wasn't long before a whole host of informants told the FBI that Whitey was involved, it was Conley who convinced his own management that Whitey wasn't responsible and even was able to sell the idea to Boston police that Castucci was owed a great deal of money and some unaffiliated individuals killed him. This not only deflected attention away from Whitey, it also nipped any inquiry into the serious occurrence of an FBI informant's murder. And it was another FBI agent's informant, so Conley wasn't affected there either. This deal with the devil only intensified when Conley tipped off Whitey and Flemmy of another major threat against Winter Hill. Among other antics, Howie Winter and company had worked with a notorious horse racing fixer named Anthony Fat Tony Ciula a near 400-pound gangster who, if he hadn't existed, Hollywood would have invented him. Ciula's specialty was bribing jockeys at some of the smaller East Coast tracks, especially Suffolk Downs in Boston, Rockingham in New Hampshire, and Lincoln Downs in Rhode Island. The plan was simple. Through a retired but still licensed jockey who therefore had access to locker rooms, money was offered to throw races, and frequently it was immediately accepted. Favored horses ridden by Fat Tony's jockeys were told to hold back and let long shots win. If a jockey was stubborn or refused to continue to throw races, Winter Hill got personally involved, making the rider an offer he couldn't refuse. The plan worked beautifully for years. The New England racetrack proceeds split up among several Winter Hill figures, including Howie Winter, John Martirano, Bolger, and Flemmy. But the scam unraveled in 1975 when in Atlantic City, racetrack jockey Jim Fantini held back his mount so obviously that racetrack officials and eventually law enforcement began a successful investigation that indicted Ciula, who was convicted of conspiracy and caught a six-year sentence. Typically, he made a deal to flip and testify against as many people as possible in conjunction with a federal investigation of racetrack fixing. A sweeping federal indictment of 12 of the major figures involved, including Martirano and Winter, was filed on February 2, 1979. But something strange occurred. Although Bolger and Flemmy were fully aware and involved in the scandal, they were not indicted, and this was no oversight. John Conley literally intervened with Jeremiah O'Sullivan, the Massachusetts federal prosecutor in charge of the case, and persuaded him to leave Flemmy and Bolger out of the indictment. Conley maintained to O'Sullivan that Whitey and Flemmy were critical informants, hoping to build a case against the Angelos and other mafiosi. O'Sullivan, just as ambitious and just as laser-focused on the mafia as the FBI, agreed. Even when told of the FBI intervention, Martirano did not question it, actually quite happy about the development because he was tipped off in advance, able to flee to Florida with guarantees from Whitey and Flemmy that they would help him financially. Howie Winter was not so fortunate. He was already in jail, serving a brief sentence over a racketeering scheme involving pinball machines. But with Ciula testifying against him, he was convicted and wound up serving eight years of a 10-year sentence. For Bolger and Flemmy, the Fat Tony case not only handed them complete control of Southie, they also took control of the remnants of the Winter Hill gang. In the cat-and-mouse game of criminal informant, it quickly became clear that the lines were being blurred as to who was the cat and who was the mouse. John Conley introduced Bolger and Flemmy to his newly installed supervisor within the FBI's Boston Organized Crime Unit, John Morris. Conley also arranged for regular dinners at Morris's home in Lexington. Dinners that include Whitey showing up with cases of very expensive wine that always got left behind. Morris was blown away by Conley's ability to gain access to two such high-level informants and was also manipulated by Whitey's slick Robin Hood facade of claiming to abhor drugs, detesting the mafia, and keeping his neighborhood free from hard drugs like cocaine and heroin and the junkies and pushers who came with such pestilence. All of these claims were outright lies, but Morris was taken in. Eventually, he started accepting expensive gifts and cash from Bolger and actually even shook hands on a deal and told both men that, quote, they could do anything they wanted as long as they didn't clip anyone, unquote. Even Morris's wife told him having these criminals to his home was a bad idea, but he scoffed at the notion. 
Soon Conley and Morris had their own nicknames, Vino and Zip. The end of the Winter Hill Gang and the emergence of Whitey Bulger as the leading figure of non-mafia organized crime in Boston was underlined by the Bulger Gang leaving Marshall Motors and acquiring access to the Triple O's Bar on Broadway in Southie. The bar downstairs looked normal enough, but it was a headquarters office on the second floor where Whitey actually did business and received callers, especially those who had attracted his attention, or worse, owed him money. That now went beyond the typical loser who had gotten in over his head with a loan shark. This also included those who couldn't pay their rent, not only bookmakers, but also drug dealers of especially marijuana and cocaine essentially extortion to operate anywhere in the greater Boston area. And this was not limited to penny ante operators. It included the biggest wholesale drug traffickers in New England. One such individual, Joe Murray, who smuggled marijuana into Boston by the ton, was warehousing his product in South Boston, and Bulger got wind of the stash and promptly informed Conley of its existence. Not only did the FBI then raid the warehouse and seize tons of marijuana, Conley was able to obscure the origin of his information, with other informants' names placed on official documentation. Internally, he used this arrest to again attempt to bolster the image of Bulger as anti-drug, when in fact Bulger's goal was to intimidate Joe Murray into paying rent, which the smuggler eventually did, paying Whitey at least hundreds of thousands and possibly much more. Gradually, even the highest-level coke and pot dealers were invited to the upstairs office of the Triple O's bar. There, Whitey would be waiting, usually with at least Kevin Weeks, a former bouncer that Whitey took under his wing, gradually relying on him as one of his top enforcers. Upstairs, the subject was told that Whitey had a contract on their life, but he was willing to forego such a drastic action if the victim-slash-dealer was willing to cut them in on a pre-decided amount of money. To those who were resistant, Whitey was matter-of-fact, making it clear that they could pay or die right on the spot. He summed up the theme of the meeting by saying, You can always make money, but you only have one life. Presented that way, the victim invariably coughed up whatever sizable tribute Whitey demanded. Whitey did not limit himself geographically to South Boston, no longer able to access Marshall Motors because of jailed, cash-strapped Howie Winter needed to rent it out. In early 1980, in a location owned by Confederate George Kaufman, he set up another headquarters at a garage on Lancaster Street, only blocks away from Jerry Angulo's North End office in a restaurant on Prince Street. Here, Bulger routinely met with Alario Larry Zanino, Angulo's number two man, among other bookies and criminals. An initially strategic spot for such interactions, the Lancaster location set off a law enforcement reaction that was practically a Keystone cop imitation. When the Boston State Police received a tip that the garage was actually a chop shop, two investigators began surveillance from across the street. Stunned when they observed the entrance and exit of some of Boston's most notorious mobsters, they realized bugging the garage would probably provide a mother load of indictments. Jack O'Donovan, the head of the organized crime unit for the Massachusetts State Police, had long suspected that the FBI was colluding with Bulger, and O'Donovan was intent on investigating and arresting Bulger himself. It took the Stadies two attempts to bug the garage. After merely breaking in after hours, they successfully installed three listening devices. The first didn't work. The second was destroyed when a 400-pound gangster named Fat Vinny Roberto accidentally sat on it and crushed it. And the third was hampered by its tendency to pick up radio transmissions from a nearby hospital's ambulance fleet. Unlike the FBI, the state police had to buy their equipment at a local radio shack, and the effort suffered as a result. It wouldn't have mattered anyway. About this time, Whitey and Steve Flemmy would no longer casually talk, either in Whitey's office or stand around in the garage, as they had done previously. In a matter of days, they stopped appearing at the garage altogether. No one else did either. It was clear someone had tipped them off. Jack O'Donovan was incensed and demanded to meet with the FBI to get to the bottom of who actually informed Bulger, especially after John Morris 
Conley's supervisor stupidly asked a Boston police investigator with knowledge of the wiretaps if the investigator was involved in the Lancaster operation. The investigator claimed to have no knowledge, but immediately contacted the state police involved and told them that Morris somehow knew about the wiretap and O'Donovan figured he was the leaker. They were both wrong. In fact, the tip came from a state police lieutenant, Richard Schneiderhan, who Steve Fleming had been bribing for years, a paid mole that Bolger and Fleming would take advantage of for another 20 years before the crooked cop's arrest and imprisonment. This incident did set off a major controversy within the Boston FBI Bureau. Lawrence Sarhat, the special agent in charge of the entire Boston office, was irritated by the Lancaster garage incident and the belief among the other law enforcement agencies in the region that the FBI was protecting Whitey and Steve Flemmy. He abruptly called in John Morris and John Conley and told them in no uncertain terms that they were to close down the two criminals as informants and treat them as criminal targets. Conley was especially adamant that this was a big mistake, the two were invaluable, and that these informants were about to enable the placing of wiretaps within Gennaro Angelo's Prince Street headquarters and a nearby social club. Sarhat, new to the assignment and the region after a transfer from sleepy Knoxville, Tennessee, understood that Conley was extremely familiar with the criminal environment, and he wasn't. He was also momentarily placated by the potential to nail the biggest Cosa Nostra operation in his territory, but he insisted on meeting with Whitey himself. This remarkable departure from typical FBI modus operandi took place around Thanksgiving 1980 at the Logan Airport Hilton. Typically, Whitey donned his charming rogue facade, explaining that the FBI was good to him when he was arrested for bank robbery, especially Paul Rico, that Conley was a close family friend of both he and his brother Bill, and that Whitey hated the mafia and their horrifying business practices, including drug trafficking and prostitution, transgressions he kept out of South Boston, his usual utter nonsense. Subsequently, Sarhat was bombarded with official reports from Conley, detailing specifically the exaggerated value that Bolger and Flemmy provided. When listening devices were successfully installed at 98 Prince Street and the social club that Gennaro and Julo also frequented, and Conley puffed up the role that Whitey and Flemmy played in this operation, Sarhat relented. Whitey and Flemmy were still good to go. There was one other related incident as a result of the Lancaster Street fiasco. By 1978, Billy Bolger was one of the most powerful politicians in the state and officially the president of the state senate. Shortly after the FBI run-in with the state police's Jack O'Donovan, a last-minute amendment was surreptitiously placed in the 1981 state budget that called for all state police ranking officers over the age of 50 to either accept a demotion and cut in pay or retire. Although the amendment only affected five such situations within the agency, one of those affected was Jack O'Donovan. The amendment made it through various committees without a vote, even being taken, so powerful was Bolger's influence within the state capitol. Luckily for O'Donovan, the governor, Ed King, had the ability to veto amendments, especially such an obvious attempt at retaliation, and he did so at the behest of various law enforcement interest groups, almost as powerful as Bill Bolger. It would take decades for the truth to emerge, even after Billy Bolger specifically and adamantly lied about the incident to a congressional committee investigating the matter. Afterwards, testifying under oath as a cooperating witness, Steve Fleming explained that not only was Bolger responsible for the legislation, he fashioned it after a specific request from his brother Whitey, who believed that heat from the state police would diminish if O'Donovan was pushed out and no longer in charge of any Bolger investigation. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Whitey Bolger. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Black Mass by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Connell, Whitey 
The Life of America's Most Notorious Crime Boss by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Connell. Whitey Bulger, America's Most Wanted Gangster by Kevin Cullen and Shelley Murphy. Most Wanted, Pursuing Whitey Bulger by Thomas J. Foley. Whitey on Trial by Margaret McLean and John Lieberman. A small portion of this material previously appeared in the December 7, 2017 edition of the Washington Babylon in the article entitled Whitey Bulger and the FBI, What Did Robert Mueller Know and When Did He Know It? by Philip D. Gibbons. Numerous articles from the Boston Herald and Boston Globe were consulted, as well as the audio archives of radio station WBUR-FM Boston. And thanks to James Dirt Donovan, Somerville, Mass., special consultant on Howie Winter and the Winter Hill Mob. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>